In last week's text, God judged Saul for not following the directions that Samuel had given him. Samuel told him to wait before answering the Philistines' challenge uh, until he arrived to provide a sacrifice uh, to God. Saul became nervous because the people were scattering, and then he became anxious because Samuel didn't arrive by the time of the morning sacrifice. Now, there was still the time of the evening sacrifice, and Samuel didn't give what time zone he was, he was going to be there. He just said he'd be there that day to offer the sacrifice, but Saul became anxious. And you know, whenever we get anxious, we are in danger of not exercising faith. Anxiety and faith are opposed to one another. Well, uh, Saul got anxious, and so he presumptively offered the sacrifice that Samuel was coming. You're talking about swerving out of your lane. He swerves out of his lane, and starts acting like he's a priest. And offers sacrifices. Well, Samuel arrives. When Samuel arrives, he asks him a question that really wasn't so much a question as it was an accusation. He asks him, what have you done? Uh, God judged this presumptive act, and he removed his blessing from Saul. The week before, we had seen Saul as a blessed man with God's anointing on him and how he did extraordinary things for the nation, helped rescue the people. But now God's blessing is gone. Now, even, in, even as God's punishment comes, it's always wrapped in mercy. So Saul did not lose his throne. He just lost the chance for a dynasty. And Jonathan, his son, was a good man. He was a man that would have made a fine king. But the blessing was gone, and God was not going to establish a dynasty on the heels of a disobedient king. There was no way that he was going to say, this is the way kings act. He was not going to let a precedent to be set. And even though his son Jonathan was a good man, he would not sit on his father's throne. Instead, his best friend would sit on his father's throne. Uh, let me correct myself. You know, I like writing sometimes better than preaching because I can just erase my mistakes and you never see them. It was never Saul's throne. It was God's throne. Jonathan would not sit on the throne that belonged to God. Instead, David would, a man that was after God's own heart. Next week, Pastor Blake is going to be preaching that message where he shows the text where Samuel anoints the man who was going to be the next king. Now, there was time that was going to pass before he would begin to reign, maybe even 15 years or so. It was a substantial amount of time that passed. But the anointing took place during Samuel's life. Now, Samuel is an old man by now. But 
he would be a part of anointing the future. That's, again, God's grace. As though Samuel would pass, he would be a part of the future. He would put the oil on David, God's chosen man, from whom, whose lineage King Jesus would be born. Don't miss the big picture in all of this. This is not about which family establishes a dynasty. It's about the one that would be born from that dynasty, and that is King Jesus. Well, Saul was able to justify his actions. He blamed the Philistines. Remember from last week? He blamed the Philistines who were threatening his people. He blamed the people because they were scattering. And he even blamed Samuel because he had not arrived first at the first opportunity for the sacrifice. He justified his actions, but as Pastor Charlie taught us last week, it all boiled down to a lack of faith in God. He did not trust in God. Yes, the Philistines were a great threat, but God is greater. Yes, the people were scattering, but didn't Gideon teach us that sometimes less is more? Yes, Samuel had not arrived for the early sacrifice, but there was still time, another time available for the sacrifice to take place. You see, if Saul would have really trusted in God, he would not, would not have had his eyes on how fierce the enemy was. He would have had his eyes on how great his God is. He wouldn't have his eyes on how small his army was becoming. But he would have had his eyes on the Lord of hosts, the Lord of spiritual armies who brings the victories. And if he would have had his eyes on eternity instead of on time, he wouldn't have mattered that Samuel hadn't arrived when he wanted him to. His eyes were not on God. And so Saul's punishment is set. Now I want you to notice the grace that's in the midst of this judgment. He still had a throne to set on. And there was still time for him to learn from his mistakes. All right, everybody in the room that's never made a mistake, please stand up. Fair enough? Some of us, notice I didn't get all the way down. I wanted to be, I wanted to be sure to be able to get up. I'd hate to have the EMTs come in. The preacher's fallen and he can't get up. <laughs> Every one of us have made mistakes, have we not? Okay. How many of us have made glaring mistakes? Can I have a witness? Amen. All right? We've made the kind of mistakes that Saul has made, but by God's grace, failure does not have to be fatal. There's room for repentance. There's time for forgiveness. The key is when you make a mistake, don't try to cover it up. Admit it, learn from it, and submit yourself to the grace of God for forgiveness and the power of God so that you will not repeat the mistake. God gives him space 
He has his whole reign to get this right. And who knows? Maybe he'll get it right today. Let's read the text to see. Would you rise as we read 1 Samuel chapter 15 verses 1 through 9. As you're standing, I'm very much aware that some of you are struggling with major decisions in your life right now. And as I read this text, I want you just to breathe this simple prayer. Lord, I'm open to hear from you today. I'm not, a, I'm not asking for your suggestions. I'm asking for you to tell me what you want me to do. And even before I hear what it is, my answer is yes. My answer is yes. Will you pray that prayer as I read this text? Again, not everybody has a major decision to make, but some of you do. And it can be a life-altering time for you. Yes, Lord, my answer is yes. Whatever you tell me, my answer is yes. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they come up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to a destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telim. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and he laid in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. Just note that the Kenites showed hospitality to Israel as they were coming out of Egypt. The Amalekites did not. Go, uh, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you show kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Verse 7. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. Verse 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. What did God told him to do? And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul, those are dangerous words. Now, but God, I can go with that. But Saul, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and lambs and all that was good 
and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, before we look at Saul's response, uh, we need to pause just because this narrative can be disconcerting. Why would God order the extermination of a people like this? Now, in our modern era, in the Geneva Convention, uh, you know, they say that all is fair and love and war. Well, not all is fair in war because we have rules with the Geneva Convention that sets boundaries, and if a person goes outside of those boundaries, then they can be convicted of war crimes, where the nations get together and say, no, we're not going to put up with that. Well, when we read the Bible with our own sensibilities, our own set of cultural values, and a sense of cultural superiority, it's very easy for us to look at a text like this and be deeply troubled by the, uh, the command that was given. And even when we take out that cultural bias, that, that sense that we have that our ways are better than the cultural ways of those days, even when we take those out, it, I'm still left scratching my head with, well, why would we order the, why would God order the killing of these innocents? It, uh, it makes no sense. I think one of the reasons it's troubling for us is we tend to focus our attention on the attributes of God like grace and mercy and very, spend very little time with his wrath. Now, let's just be honest about that. Uh, we just don't have a lot of our corporate time together when we're studying biblical themes and when we're studying scriptures, where we focus on the wrath of God. And yet the wrath of God is foundational for us to even understand his mercy. And so it may be that the emphasis of our modern times and our sensibilities and the kinds of subjects that we tend to talk about when we gather uh, has colored this a little bit, and, and we, just, we just don't appreciate that God is not a pushover. And that if you want to put a Santa Claus beard on God when you're talking about his grace, you've got, you've got the wrong image. Yes, God is merciful. Yes, God is gracious. And yes, God is wrathful. He does avenge sin. But it's not just that we don't talk about it, but because we don't talk about it, we don't reflect on wrath much. And so I want to just do that briefly with us for a moment, okay? God's wrath when he's punishing the sinful, atrocious behavior of those who are his, his enemies that are opposed to that which is good, 
is actually merciful to his people. You know, when you think about the worst crimes possible against humanity, at least the ones that are common among us, you know, I, I would throw pedophilia in there or child abuse or those kinds of things, right? I mean, are you with me there? The thought of them not being punished and stopped seems to be unjust and lacking of mercy and grace, doesn't it? And so I know this is a difficult subject, and I know that really would require hours of discussion to build it out and to have an adequate ethical discussion about this. But if you'll just let me sum it up quickly and leave that longer discussion for another time. Let me just sum it up quickly that when God's wrath is poured out on those that are a threat to his redemptive plan, it is merciful. It is gracious. God's wrath can be merciful, not just because of the innocent people that are are being protected. But I want you to notice that the Amalekites had generations to turn and repent. And they had done some atrocious things. Just jot down these texts to look at later. Numbers chapter 14, Judges chapter 3, Judges 6 through 7, and then 10, 12. Go back later and read through those texts. They had done some unspeakable, atrocious things. And yet God gave them generations to repent. And they did not. God poured out his judgment, but he did it in a merciful way. Their nation had a chance to repent. Now, this should not have been a secret to, to Saul. I don't know if you've noticed a pattern, but every time we've been looking at these texts from 1 Samuel, we've needed to go back to Deuteronomy to understand something a little better. You know, Scripture interprets Scripture. And if you really want to know what's happening in this latter prophets, you have to go back to Deuteronomy. Because in a, in a sense, these stories, these narratives, are teaching the truths in the book of Deuteronomy. It was a way to teach them in an oral society, especially when all of it wasn't written down. And so these are the great stories of their nations that's later been written down for us to be able to read. But these, if you will, campfire stories are stories that fathers told their children in their home. Go back to Deuteronomy 6 if you need a reference for why they were doing that. Because they were taught to do that. And so 1 Samuel is really a collection of narratives that teaches us about the law from Deuteronomy. Well, we need to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19. The text says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary. There's nothing like kicking somebody when they're down. 
He attacked you when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all of your enemies around you in this land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens, and you shall not forget. Saul should have known. If he had read Deuteronomy, and remember the rules of the kings that was set forth in Deuteronomy, they never were supposed to rule uh, authoritatively. They were always under God's rule. They, they, they did not have final authority like the kings and other nations had. See, sometimes we think that Saul pushed God off his throne. Give me a break. Remember, it was God's throne that Saul was setting on, and by the way, he had another throne. <laughs> He had another throne that's in another place in eternity that was much greater and grander than any throne that Saul ever sat on. However, even with this explanation, uh, it's troubling to think about from the modern reader. It's trouble, troubling for us to think about the killing of children, women, and animals. What's up with the animals? Killing the animals in a war effort. However, Saul didn't seem to have a problem with that portion of the command. Look at verse 9. He saved the king. He did not spare the women and children. Seemed to have no problem with that. And all the worthless animals, what he determined were worthless and having problems slaying them. However, the best, the best, the best of the animals he spared. So he spared the king. Perhaps we see that Saul was a nervous, anxious kind of a person. We kind of saw that last week and the week before, did we not? Kind of a you know, remember him hiding among the luggage a few weeks ago and remember him being anxious before, couldn't wait for Samuel to come for the evening sacrifice. You know, we have all of that happening here. And maybe he's thinking, I don't want to get the reputation for killing kings because if we're ever defeated, I want to be spared. Who knows what he was thinking? We don't know. All we know is he was disobedient. Well, Saul's actions grieved God and angered Samuel. Look at 1 Samuel 15, 10 through 11. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me, not performed my commandments. And Saul was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Now, I, I said a moment ago that it grieved God and the ESV that we're reading from here says that God regretted. And I've used the word grieved, uh, perhaps, I, I just think it's a better word at least for us in modern usage because regret has the connotation of reflecting over whether or not I made a mistake. Doesn't it? 
And so the word can also be translated grieved. And I'm not a better translator than the translators of ESV. My goodness, I've, I remember so little from Hebrew class. Uh, but I do have good commentaries, I, I can tell you that. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to say I'm better. You can trust your English translations. I'm not saying they're not adequate. I'm just saying that our understanding of the word regret is not the same as the force of this word. It grieved God. Now, I said a moment ago that whenever you're reading a text and you need help understanding it, don't run to ask somebody else or don't let your first place you run to to be a commentator because scholars can be wrong too. Instead, run to the Bible and see another place where the word is used in the Bible and see if it helps you. And this particular word is used elsewhere in the Bible that I think will help us and understand that this regret doesn't mean that God was thinking he had made a mistake. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, the same word is used. And here it's used in this context. It says, so the Lord said, I will blot out man who I've created from the face of the of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds from the heaven. For I am sorry that I have made them. Hear this, I am, I am sorry is the same Hebrew word. Here it's translated like I'm grieved, I'm, I'm sorry about this. And in the same way that it was good for God to create the earth, it was bad that man sinned and defiled creation, but it was good that God created the earth. So I say it was good for God to give Saul a chance. That's the kind of God we serve. He gives us a chance. Now it may be inevitable that we will sin and make the mistake. Well, it is inevitable for all of sin to come short of the glory of God. But God gives us the chance to do what was right. And it grieves him when we don't. Creation was not a divine mistake and giving Saul a chance wasn't a divine mistake either. But it grieved him. In the case of our sin, praise God, it grieved him enough that he sent King Jesus here to die on the cross to redeem fallen man. And by the way, note that Revelation 13.8 teaches that that was not a decision made in response to our sin. It was not a reactive decision. Before the foundation of the world, God purposed for the lamb to be slain for the sin. Even though God knew man would sin, he still created. He still breathed into us the breath of life. And he purposed from the beginning to send a redeemer. The first time that the scripture says that God was grieved, God initiated his grace response by commissioning Noah to build an ark and to start over. This time where he mentions that God is grieved 
He anoints David. Again, next week's message. He anoints David, and from his lineage, the King Jesus would be born, who would bring about redemption to the world. God was grieved, and Samuel was angered. Samuel was angered so well, he was so upset that he didn't sleep well at night. I hate that, don't you? He was angry, he was upset. Um, the text doesn't say who he is angry at. It just says he was angry. Didn't sleep well. And then he has a journey to make to go and confront Samuel, to confront Saul. Let's rejoin the story in verse 12. When Samuel rose early, he came for the late sacrifice, right? But not today, he got up early. He rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Can I read that a little slower? Saul was gone. He had set up a monument for himself. Is there anything else you need to know about Saul? God had just given him a victory. And he decides to build a monument to himself. And turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Anybody's jaw dropping in the room? And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They, <clears throat> they, Saul builds a monument to himself, but they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people. The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. So Saul builds this monument to himself in Carmel to commemorate his victory. Incredible. Doesn't mention the soldiers that valiantly won the battle. Doesn't build anything to honor the Lord who gave the victory. Uh, Saul was, uh, well, he was feeling pretty good about himself. So good that he had the audacity to memorialize his greatness in building a monument in Carmel of all places. Nothing to honor the Lord. Nothing to thank the people. Oh, he's going to mention the people in a minute, right? He's going to get around to them. But now, nothing. A monument to himself. No recognizing of the troops that fought the battle. But he did have time to build a monument to his greatness. How long had he been king? He's already a great man, huh? Or he's a great king. What is this like 
day six, day seven, I don't know, it may be week six or seven. But we need to build a monument already early on. Well, I guess on the other hand, who else is going to build it to him, right? When Samuel met him, Saul bragged about what he had done, that he had done what the Lord had commanded him to do. I don't know, maybe it was his way of repairing his relationship with Samuel. That he wanted to lead with his partial obedience. Friends, partial obedience is complete disobedience. He said, I did what you told me to do. Uh, perhaps he was expecting Samuel to kind of, well, at least there's some improvement here, you know? Atta boy Saul. But Samuel wasn't interested in going along to get along. You see, that's, that's not the way prophets are wired. He was not intimidated by Saul's position, nor was he impressed by the monument that he had built to his greatness. Once again, he asked one of those prophetic questions. Just like last week, Saul, what have you done? That's really an accusation. That happens once again in verse 14. What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul had a quick reply. I don't know, he doesn't impress me as a guy that thinks well on his feet. He impresses me more like a schemer that's preloaded an excuse. Who knows? He says, uh, oh, we, you know, we saved the good stuff for a sacrifice. What is it with Saul and sacrifices? Can you help me with this? What is it? I mean, it's like he swerved out of his lane, had a head-on collision with the divine. And now the next opportunity he gets, he decides that being a king isn't good enough. He needs to be a priest also. Now, there is a king who would be prophet, who would be priest, but he wasn't Saul. That was King Jesus. Is that it? Is Saul having a Messiah complex here? Is Saul really believing that he is answer to the needs of the people? So he saves these choice animals. Now, in the book of 1 Samuel, the response is set aside as poetry. And whenever, whenever you're reading this Old, this Old Testament text, especially in the latter prophets, whenever you're reading it, whenever it comes to poetry, and, and in fact, 1 Samuel uses more poetry than, than the other Old Testament uh, 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 narratives. Whenever it comes to poetry, it is to nail the point. It is our clue that this is the point of the text. And what does Samuel say to him? To obey is better than sacrifice. Let's look at 1 Samuel 15, 22 through 23. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. 
Now look at verse 23. I tell you, if you're struggling with following the will of God, your knees should be shaking right now as we read verse 23. Look at what it says. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he's also rejected you from being king. Now, ultimately, God is going to provide the sacrifice. He didn't need Saul's. He certainly didn't need animals that belonged to the Amalekites to be sacrificed to him. The sacrifice was coming. And it was going to be a lamb, all right, but it was going to be a spotless lamb, a perfect lamb. It'd be the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world that I referenced earlier in the message. That sacrifice was coming. He doesn't need sacrifice from Saul, and he doesn't need sacrifice from us. He needs one thing. He needs the one word title to this message, obedience. Somehow Saul thought his substitute plan would do greater good than God's plan. That if he had spared these animals and spared this king and build a monument to himself, couldn't he have used that time preparing for the sacrifice that he thought needed to be given to the Lord? He thought his plan was better than God's plan. Next week, the story continues. For now, let's bring it home to our life and our decisions and what's happening in our life today. Today I want to ask you two questions that's going to help you determine whether or not you're being obedient to God. The first one is, are you keeping His commandments? Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 13 says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, soon we're going to be studying the relationship of what it means to be free in Christ and our faith and what are the constraints around that. It seems to me that some folks use what they call freedom as a license for sinful behavior. So we're going to be spending time in the book of Galatians as a church to help us sort through those issues. That's coming. But even before we start doing that, this question of are we keeping his commandments God's will will never lead you to violate what he's taught us in his word and if we clearly understand the teaching from scripture i mean something that's indisputable we read it and we know what it says. If we step outside of doing what the scripture teaches us, we are as presumptuous as Saul who substituted God's plan 
with his plan. So when the scripture teaches us clearly what we are to do, and we know it, I'm not saying some preacher with an agenda is trying to manipulate you. I'm talking about you're reading the text, you understand the text, and the Spirit of God is bearing witness. Are you being obedient to what you know to do? You know, there are those that always want to go deeper in their understanding of the Bible while ignoring the things that they already know. That's not helpful. Now, going deeper is fine. But we, it's irrelevant if you're not going to be obedient. It's just irrelevant. Number two, are you obeying his voice? Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 23 says, But this command I gave them, Obey my voice and I will be your God. And you shall be my people and walk in the way that I command you that it may be well with you. Not only does God speak to us through his word, but he speaks to us when we pray. And when we hear the voice of God and we know it's the voice of God, we must obey. So how are you at obeying? Are you following the clear instruction of scripture? And are you following what you know God has led you to do when you've prayed? Let's pray together.